Well, good morning. Uh, good morning. Just to make sure you're out there. Um, we are beginning a new series this morning, and um, it is one I've looked forward to for quite some time. Uh, it's one that I, I hope to bring new appreciation for. Uh, it's from the book of James. Sometimes I'm not sure the book is uh, appreciated as it should. Some have considered to be like a straw gospel, not as weighty or heavy or significant as, say, Romans or Ephesians. But I hope as we go through this, you'll see that when this was written, it was extremely significant to the early church. And uh, I believe it's also very relevant and important to us today. James will call himself the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He is one who definitely is significant in the church. He is a Christian of great uh, stature. And so our series entitled in How Then Shall We Live? And that comes, that question comes from saying, if I am a Christian, or if I say that I'm a bondservant of Christ, what does that look like? How then shall we live? And James writes to a church in distress. How then shall we live? And he's giving us wisdom for Christians living in distressed times. So this is more of an introduction to this incredible book. And then we will launch in next week into the actual text that flows in verse 2. So this morning, I'd like to introduce to you to a very important man in the Bible who was deeply respected and had great influence in the early church. He writes to the church, brother to brothers. He's identified in the Bible and uh, amongst the writings in the New Testament as an apostle. And yet he is not one of the original twelve. Some called him a pillar in the church. Others knew him as camel knees. You say, what? That's kind of a strange name, is it not? Well, actually, it's a very wonderful name. Camel knees. Camel knees described the calluses that were on his knees from years of praying before the Lord. A man dedicated to prayer. And he will exhort us about prayer as we go through the book. And he's also recognized as James the Just. James the Just because he was deeply committed to moral purity. This man is the half-brother of Jesus and the firstborn natural son of Mary and Joseph. James is a brother of Christ. And he's the author of this book. So let's begin our introduction by looking first at the influence that Jesus had on his life and his teaching. I want to go back first to some of the events that distinguished him, where we first learn about him. 
On a windswept grassy hill sat a multitude. A multitude overlooking Galilee with its deep blue water, its rocky coastline, its fishing boats, and fast-paced village below. The people in the multitude, they were transfixed by the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. The kingdom that he talked about would be inherited not by the rich, not by the intellect, but be inherited by the poor, the mournful, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, and the persecuted. He addressed them as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. No one had ever spoken to them with such hope and love. And Jesus condemned the sins of commission as well as the sins of omission. He confronted Jerusalem's self-righteous religious hierarchy who prided themselves on their meticulous attention to the observable, keepable, man-made demands of the law while they conveniently denied the unobservable, unkeepable attitudes of the heart. For example, Jesus taught that outbursts of anger and slander were as much a sin as murder. Adultery was not only an act of marital unfaithfulness, but also as a consuming lust for others and for things. He claimed that he came to fulfill all the demands of the law for us, for the people. But the people thought, wait a minute, I thought it was all about us, about us performing good works. You see, they didn't understand that the demands of the law went far beyond just loving God. It included, Jesus said, loving your neighbor, and this is the one that they didn't want to hear, as well as your enemy. That brought this whole discussion to a different level. You see, that was the most abhorrent thing they had ever heard. They were asking, how can they be asked to love Gentiles who ruled their land? How could God require them to forgive these godless, idolatrous people? Jesus also taught that the greatest treasures in life are not stored up on the earth, but up in heaven. And only those who sought God's kingdom first and his righteousness would gain the blessings of life now and forevermore. So hypocrites and moral judges, they need not apply. His rule of conduct was to do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. That the path and the gate that leads to destruction is wide. He added, but very few ever find this path. 
Jesus taught that they would be judged like a tree is judged by its fruit. You see, good fruit, Jesus taught, came from good trees and bad fruit from bad trees. Therefore, he concluded that not everyone who cries out, Lord, Lord, on judgment day will enter the kingdom of God. We will be surprised who's there and even more surprised who's not there. Um, Some may claim to have faith in God or have done great things in his name, but only those who actually did God's will and bore good fruit would be saved. Jesus said it is foolish to hear the message of the kingdom of God and then reject it. It's like a fool, he said, who builds his house on sand and then it is washed away when the rains come. But the wise man, when he hears Christ's words, he acts upon them. He's like a man who builds his house on the rock. And when the torrential rains of adversity and judgment come, his house stands on solid ground. And that rock is Christ and his righteousness. When Jesus concluded his sermon on the mount, the crowd was mixed. Mixed with astonishment as well as consternation. They had never heard anyone preach with such authority. Many of the crowd walked away wanting to hear more about the kingdom of God. Others walked away troubled by what they'd heard. They wondered why the works of the law weren't enough to find acceptance with God. And one particular family that left the hillside of Galilee, they were greatly perplexed. That family was from Nazareth. It was Jesus' family. Now let's consider James, the brother of our Lord. And here's what we learn about James and his family. One day, we are told that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue of Nazareth. And the townspeople were offended by what they had heard. They were offended because this homegrown homeboy, carpenter's son, was questioning their piety. They protested, now who appointed you? Who appointed him to be our prophet? Not us. So the crowd shouted out in Matthew 13. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas... And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. 
But Jesus said to them, a prophet is with, not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. How true that is. It's like, how can this carpenter's son speak to us like that? So their outcry was filled with consternation as well as insinuation. They knew Joseph, who likely had died some years before. He was the town carpenter, but the questionable father of Jesus. They knew Mary, that she was Jesus' mother, and that he, she had sons and daughters. And the first brother they called out by name was James. And his name literally means Jacob. He was named after his grandfather, as well as the great patriarch of Israel, by the name of Jacob. The second brother mentioned was Joseph, or for short, but he was known as Joseph. That would be his father's name. And then there was Simon, who likely was named after another family member. Then the fourth and youngest brother was named Judas, or Jude for short. He was named after the tribe of Judah, from which both of his parents came, and the Christ was expected to come. Now, where have we heard of Jude before? Well, Jude came to faith, and he wrote the book of Jude. And his sisters were not named, and there's no mention of their names in the Bible. This was Jesus' family. Now, I've pondered that thought for quite some while. How would you like to have grown up in Joseph and Mary's home? And Jesus was your brother. Your mother couldn't help but compare you to Jesus. Why can't you be like Jesus? Are you serious? He was perfect in every way. He always picked up his clothes, came when called, did what was right, obeyed his parents, was ready for synagogue every Sunday without parents having to get him going. He never griped or grumbled about doing his chores in the carpenter shop. And he always got straight A's. And you? <laughs> now, no doubt his family was in awe of him, but they were also becoming troubled, troubled by his incredible claims. I remember, carpenter's son, brother in a family, and now they're hearing him out on the hillsides. He was fast becoming the hero of sinners. The poor, the meek, the downtrodden, the sick, the lame, tax collectors, lepers, and believe it or not, even prostitutes. His family knew if he continued opposing the religious elite, that danger was sure to come. Now, James must have pondered all these things in his mind. 
No doubt he admired his brother greatly. But at this time he was unconvinced of his messianic claims. James, a devout student of the law, still maintained that righteousness came through performance of the law. The accumulation of good works. So how could Jesus claim to keep the law for us, said James, when he knew that even he couldn't keep all of the law perfectly? How could Jesus impute or place God's righteousness on sinners when the law couldn't do that? You see, these are the kinds of questions that must have swirled around in James' mind. And he and his family, however faithfully, they followed Jesus from town to town, wherever he went, proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing the sick and casting out demons. And there in the crowd somewhere was Mary, James, his brothers, and his sisters. They didn't believe, but they loved him and supported their brother. Now, crowds began to grow wherever he went. And as his reputation grew, more and more people followed him. Once while speaking to a multitude, Jesus' mothers and brothers And sisters apparently stood outside the crowd hoping to speak with him. Let's let's talk. Jesus, we haven't talked to you today. You've had to let all these other people. You just, everybody's around you. We just need to talk to you a little bit. We'd like to, what time are you coming home so we can have dinner? Uh, We'd like to talk with you about things at home. and, And you've got yourself surrounded by all these people. And when someone notified Jesus that his mom and family were there, here's his response. Who? Who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' response was not rude. It was not unkind. Rather, he was clarifying his true identity. His true identity as the Son of God. And only those known to the Father and obeyed by the Father were his true family. Um, That would include us here this morning. And this had to shock James. Things at home were becoming tense with incredulity and fear. And James knew that a day of reckoning was fast approaching. And James' disbelief grew. It grew as Jesus' reputation grew. The religious elite of Jerusalem had already begun to plot Jesus' death. Therefore, Jesus could no longer walk into Judea 
without fear of being captured and killed. Some thought Jesus was the Christ, but most thought he was out of his mind, including his family. As the Feast of Tabernacles approached, James and his brothers, they came to Jesus again. And they urged him, go to Judea, so his disciples, his followers could see his good works. Why were they urging him to go? In essence, this is what they were saying to Jesus. If you're going to make a big splash, make these outrageous claims, and continue doing these great miracles, then go to Jerusalem and make a name for yourself. Well, they argued, no one does such things like this in secret if they want to become famous. And isn't that, Jesus, what you want? You see, striving for power, prominence, and possessions, they understood. But ministering to the poor, the meek, the hungry, in secret, just made no sense at all. In John 7, 5, it says, even his brothers didn't believe in him at this time. Then Jesus replied to his brother's request. My time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me. Because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast. For my time has not yet fully come. That last line is full of significance. He said he would remain and that he would wait. What was he waiting for? For the day that his father had ordained that he would go to Jerusalem, submit to the atrocities of the cross, Jesus knew that day was coming, and it wasn't that particular day. You see, he always lived according to his purpose, of his destiny, of his mission. James' disbelief soon turned to grief. Later, when Passover near, near Jesus with his small band of followers, along with his mother and brothers, They journeyed to Jerusalem. To their amazement, as they neared Jerusalem, Jesus was met by a howling multitude of admirers. Children danced before him, waving palm fronds, as if they were welcoming royalty. And the crowd cried out, Hosanna! Hosanna to the King! One can only imagine what was going through James' mind when he saw the crowd and heard their cry. James saw his brother riding on a donkey like a king coming to his own coronation. And you know what? There's an irony to this. Hypothetically and humanly speaking, 
Jesus could and should have been crowned king of Israel. Both Mary and Joseph were of the chosen seed of Judah, the lineage of kings. Jesus was Joseph's firstborn son by adoption. But James could have also made that claim. He was the firstborn natural son of Joseph. And these thoughts of royalty were dashed by the turn of events that next Friday. James and his family watched with shock as Jesus stood shackled before a howling mob. Some of the same people that welcomed him, they were now crying out, Crucify him! Crucify him! He's not our king! By noon, clouds shrouded the sun and darkness prevailed over the earth. Against the dark sky in Jerusalem was a silhouette of three crosses. And on one hung Jesus of Nazareth, bleeding Sweating, toiling, and suffering. They had hurriedly pressed down on his head a crown of thorns. It was a pathetic sight to watch his mother kneeling and weeping at the foot of the cross. And with his last breath, her son cried out in triumph, It is finished. We're not told what James did next. Maybe he scurried away for fear of his own life as Jesus' disciples did. Any faith or credibility James had in his brother vanished that day. But something miraculous happened. That changed James into what he called himself the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Something happened. Three days later. Early Sunday morning a few women went to the garden tomb. There they met with the risen Christ. Then they went to tell the disciples. And Peter and John ran back to the tomb. And when they arrived the tomb was empty. And two angels announced that Jesus has risen. But we're also told later that day that Jesus made a a special appearance to his brother, James. Seeing his resurrected brother changed his life forever. James' grief Turned to celebration and preparation for the rest of his life. For the next 40 days, Jesus was teaching the disciples, the followers, and we assume James as well, about all the things concerning himself, beginning with Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. A 40-day crash course in Old Testament. 
type and shadow became reality. Old Testament law and ritual were seen fulfilled in Christ. James would never understand the scriptures the same again. And those days transformed James. After these 40 days, Jesus led his disciples and family to the Mount of Olives. And there he promised that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They would become his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And then they watched him. Slowly, surely, ascending up to the clouds into heaven. The disciples, James and his family, they obediently remained in Jerusalem to pray, just as Jesus had told them. Then ten days later, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came as promised upon them in power. Only twelve years later, James wrote this letter, this epistle in which he referred to himself as James, the bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He was saying, I am committed to follow God. I'm committed to following and serving Christ, my brother. Grammatically, this phrase could have been translated James, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, both God and Lord. There's no question that the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit radically changed him. By referring to himself as a bondservant of God, he was placing himself under the authority of his half-brother, who was God in flesh. He became the first bishop, presiding elder over the church, including the apostles. He was recognized as a great leader, a pillar of the church, as we said. And what few glimpses we have of James in the book of Acts center around his relationship with the apostle Paul. After Paul came to Christ, he went to meet with a man of prominence in Jerusalem. Who was that man? James. Paul referred to James as an apostle. Some years later, Paul returned to report to James how the Spirit was working among the Gentiles. The church that was led by James, recognized and affirmed Paul's work and what God was doing amongst the churches. James offered Paul the right hand of fellowship and sent him out with his blessing to be the first official missionary of the church of Jesus Christ out of Jerusalem. This was important because It affirmed that the gospel of grace was for both Jew and Gentile. 
And James was making that statement. As the gospel progressed, reports were often given back to James. But there was a crisis in the year AD 49. Certain men who had been sent from James arrived in Antioch where Paul at that time was preaching and planting the church. And that church contained Gentiles. And a controversy erupted over what place should circumcision have in the life of a Christian. Now the Christians in Antioch urged Paul, go to Jerusalem to meet with James. They wanted this issue settled once and for all. Both Paul and Peter were convinced that there was only one gospel for both Jew and Gentile. So a council was called in Jerusalem. Paul stood up and he recounted all the miracles and the wonders that had accompanied his ministry with and among the Gentiles. Then James stood up. Said, I'm going to make a decision on this. I'm going to make a verdict. In James 15, 13 through 15. Brothers. Remember, brother to brothers. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, an elect, a chosen. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. James has stood before all the uh, leaders of the church and said, I have made this pronouncement. Listen to me. And then he quotes from the book of Amos, chapter 9. The answer to this question. What do we do with Gentiles? What do we do with those who have not been circumcised? Should we require them to do so? Now he quotes from Amos. These are the words of the Lord from Amos. After this I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James is quoting the prophet. Where did he learn how to read from, uh, from Amos about this? How to enter from his brother. That's how he came to know these things. That's how, why he writes this book. There it was. God had affirmed long before his plan to save both Jew and Gentile. Then James gave his ultimatum. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is James saying, so therefore the final decision is Gentiles are part of the same family. We're all one family. Jew and Gentile, one family in Christ. This letter was sent out as official declaration of the gospel to all the churches. Do you know how radical and important that was? Years later, as Paul made his last missionary journey, where did he go? He returned once again to Jerusalem to meet with James. Through all the controversies these two veterans were facing, they had deep respect for each other. There is no division between these two. There is no distinction between their gospel, as some would say. They both shared a love for Christ and a passion to take the gospel to all the nations. Those who claimed there was a great theological divide between them, I think, are greatly mistaken. He makes his appeal in this book. The twelve tribes scattered among the nations. The people of Israel scattered among the Gentiles. Because it's early in the years of the church. His epistle was addressed to Christians, Jewish Christians, in what has been called the diaspora or the dispersion. Sometime between A.D. 45 and 48. Many Christians had escaped Jerusalem after Stephen and James, the brother of John, were martyred. Also, there was a famine in Jerusalem that compelled many Jewish Christians to seek food and business in other cities and nations. The church, therefore, was scattered, dispersed throughout the known world. James addressed these dispersed believers as brothers. He says... He addresses the church as his brothers 15 times in this relatively short book. Why? Because he saw the church as God's forever family, both Jew and Gentile. He also will refer to the church, to the brothers, as the fellowship of the Christ. I like that idea. That's us. What church should you go to? Well, I go to the Fellowship of Christ. It's called Reverence Bible Church. That's the thing we have in common. That's what distinguishes us. That's what unites us together, is this fellowship, this related love that we have for Christ. That's what this is all about. These early Christians met in homes, for refuge and worship. And the apostles appointed leaders and pastors over these homes. And you will see that James will talk about this. James, living in Jerusalem, 
was the bishop presiding over the leaders of all the churches. James wrote this book, and I refer to it as the first epistle of faith. His pastoral letter is dated between AD 45 and 48. You say, so why do we need to know that? Well, it was written before Paul's ministry in Antioch. And before even some of the great controversies took place. See, there was no time for controversy between Paul and James. James had already written this book before James or before Paul stepped out on the stage. That's why this book is so interesting. It gives us a unique, unique look at what Jesus' teaching sounded like, read like, at a very early stage of the church. James quotes the Old Testament Testament more than 80 times from Genesis to Malachi. He definitely was schooled in the scriptures. We also find that he makes 21 references or allusions to Christ's sermon on the mount. And I hope to be able to kind of flesh that out for you as we move along through our series. And contrary to some who regard this epistle as only a random collection of moral musings, it really is a theology. It's a theology that came from Jesus' teachings. For example, his theology throughout this letter affirms God. Fourteen times God in this book. That God is one. God is gracious. God is good. God is holy. God is undivided. God is sovereign and just in all his way. How's that for a theology to start with? Essential. He claims Jesus Christ is Lord and God, the righteous judge. He taught sinners were born with a depraved nature, inclined to friendship with the world, and unable to control their tongues because their hearts were evil. His view of salvation, I believe, was identical to Paul's. Sinners are justified. They're declared righteous by God through faith alone, in Christ alone. And where there is true faith, there should also follow good works that authenticate God's sovereign grace in them. James' theology of these churches, very similar to that of Paul, that there should be a plurality of elders in local churches. He also believed Christ's return was imminent. That means is that it is sure to come, and it could come at any moment. He looked forward to the hope of eternal reward and escape from eternal retribution. The purpose of this letter was a call. It was a call to faith, a call to obedience, a call to purity, a call to joy in the midst of trials and tribulations. How then shall we live? And he answers that question. His concerns were the same as those that concern us today. He warns in this book trends that will infiltrate the church. Like concupiscence, which is the perversion of passion. Materialism, prejudice, favoritism, ritualism, 
pessimism, dissension, impatience, and prayerlessness. Has anything changed? These and many more concerns are addressed in this epistle. And I encourage you to get familiar with James. James is the apostle of faith, as was Paul. And he he greeted the fellowship of the Christ with greetings. That word greetings can also be rejoice. James, do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to the dispersed, the despised, the downtrodden. That's what he's saying. And wait, we get to the next, next week to the, the second verse. <laughs> Count it all joy. Rejoice. I'm greeting you who are dispersed around the world. It's an exhortation to rejoice in the midst of your trials. The church needs to hear this call today. There is reason to rejoice. Thank you. Jesus' message and James' message is as relevant and vital today as it was in those days. James was a living example of what it meant to be a bondservant of God. He, like the other disciples, however, died a martyr. In the year 62, many of the same Jews who condemned Jesus, that came from the Sanhedrin, also condemned and murdered James. Church tradition records his death. It was a result of religious leaders pushing James off the pinnacle of the temple. Do you remember the temptation for Jesus? Remember Satan said, jump? Well, they took James up there and they pushed him off. When he hit the ground, apparently didn't die. And they began stoning him with rocks. And not satisfied with his moanings, they took clubs and beat him to death. My friends, he was a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much we could learn from James and we're going to try to find out as much as we can But the one message that's going to come through over and over again is rejoice. Rejoice in your trials. Rejoice in your difficult days of adversity because Christ has conquered sin and death. Greetings. From James. Let's pray. Father, here this morning we've heard from the half brother of 
your beloved son, Jesus. Wow, how his life changed dramatically when he looked into the face of his resurrected brother. When he saw Christ in his glory. When he learned during those critical days about all the things that your word has said about Jesus from Genesis to Malachi. Here was a man who stepped up. Here's a man who uh, took upon himself the responsibilities of the church when it was unpopular and very difficult. Here's a man who endured all kinds of adversity, ridicule, rejection, controversy. But he did it because he was a bondservant of yours. Father, This morning we come to you and ask that your spirit will speak to our spirit. That your spirit will remind us that there is victory and triumph in Christ. We pray, Father, that we will submit our lives to Christ as James did. To become a bondservant, willing to live and even if necessary to die. To serve you when it's not easy. To serve you when there is controversy. To serve you in the midst of difficult days. Lord, what a pleasure it is. What a joy it is to have hope. What a great thing to know that we are part of the forever family. That you ordained. That you chose Before the foundation of the world. We are your people today. There's reason for hope. History's going somewhere. Our lives matter. You have a purpose. You have a plan for each of us. We are your family. Now and forevermore. Father, if by chance there is someone here this morning. Who has heard about the kingdom of God but has rejected it perhaps this is the day to become wise not foolish may your spirit give them faith to believe may you cause them to repent and come to you that they might inherit eternal life that begins now father for those who are your servants here at the church serving in many, many capacities. Please encourage them. May we see the honor, the privilege to be your servants. Father, we ask for your blessing on us, your sons and your daughters. We are the fellowship of the Christ. Bless your people today for your glory, both now and forevermore. Build up your church, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.